Today's episode of In the Trenches is brought to you by System 12 Guitar Method. Sign up today at RyanRoxy.com. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 and welcome to another live stream episode of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. I am your host, Ryan Roxy. Man, I feel good today. You know why? Because we've had some crazy shows the last couple of weeks. We have. And, and almost like I haven't felt like, I feel that today is a step back into our, a little bit of an in the trenches classic type of interview today. Because the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, we had Star Star, well, I'm sorry, Scream Idol on last week from Greece. And of course, they uh, unearthed some stories from the old school days about... Um, a little bit got it got a little over the line, got a little debauchery. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. But the thing was, the stories today are gonna go over the line. At least they're just not gonna be about me, right? I'm okay with that. And then the week before, uh, we had episode 77, but we are all about this episode. I believe it's number 80, isn't it, Vic? Man, we've been doing it. And if this is your first time watching In the Trenches, please hit that subscribe button right there. Uh, We want to see you at the Ryan Roxy official YouTube channel. That is where we have the live chat. If you're listening to us on Facebook Live, thank you very much. As well as Apple uh, Podcast and Spotify and Stitcher and every single one of the audio ones. Get on over to the video because we would love to have you at our uh, YouTube official channel, which is Ryan Roxy official. Okay, you ready for it? (laughs) <laughs> Not every day do we have a New York Times best-selling author on the podcast, but today we do. And here to talk about the book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion, complete with umlauts over the O for good measure, just so you know, would you please welcome one of the co-authors of that book, as well as a fellow guitarist and a rock and roller, Rich Beanstalk. Hello, Rich. Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I know we have a little bit of a time um, constraint today, which is no problem because you got a busy life. We all got busy lives. I appreciate everybody in the chat taking some time out of their lives to uh, come and support the podcast and support you and the new book. So right out of the gate, that's what I want to dive into is this book that you and your co-author, Tom Bujor, put out earlier this year. Is that the two of you? Hold on. Vic? That's us, yeah. Okay. Now, Plus dog. Now, did the, did the dog have anything to do with the, the, the book or the co-authoring? Does he get credit or no? In all honesty, the dog did most of the work, but <laughs> no, no credit. You made the dog pay, didn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyhow, Rich, thank you very much for making it out. I didn't know when we first uh, talked if you were going to be on the East Coast or the West Coast. It turns out you're neither. You are coming to us uh mountain time right so i am yes how are you finding the rocky mountain high of uh, colorado these last couple of years <laughs> you know it's been great um i never thought of myself as a mountain man um new york born and raised and moved out here from brooklyn but you know it's working for me that's good that's good and you got you got family life out there um I know that the new book that you have out the uncensored history of 80s hard rock explosion it 
encompasses interviews from a ton of bands, I think almost over 200. Is that right? Yeah. 200 yeah. interviews. So I know that your partner, uh, Tom, he sort of covered a lot of the East Coast bands or maybe, I don't know, just split the states in half and you covered the West Coast <laughs> and you covered more of the LA bands or how did that whole work out? How did it work out sort of putting together that album, this collection of stories? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one thing that you, and you kind of just hit on it, like we did wind up, I focused more on LA and the West Coast and Tom focused more on the East Coast, but that wasn't really by any grand design. It kind of just worked out that way. And some of the bands we gravitated toward, you know, I sort of gravitate toward Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and, and really just dove into that part of it. Whereas he really likes White Lion and some of these other bands that came from the East Coast. So, and, and it's not to say it was that strict anyway, there's a lot of overlap in terms of what we did, but you know, to sort of answer the question more broadly, there wasn't really this big sort of design at the beginning, like you're going to do this region or this band, I'm going to do this band in this region. It was kind of just like when we decided to do this, we just were like, let's go out and get everyone we can, find everyone we can, worry about it later, how to deal with it. Right. Well, the idea, um, what spawned the idea? Was it, for one, I can imagine because... I've watched interviews of both of you guys. You both have guitars in the background. You have some right there. Um, I do, yeah. Does it start with the love for the guitar right out of the <laughs> gate? It does. I think, uh, you know, Tom and I, we've known each other about 25 years now, and we started, we met each other at Guitar World magazine. Uh, so we're both guitarists, and we're both uh, guys who played in bands for a lot of years and, you know, did the whole trying to make it thing, you know, doing it in New York. Um, you know, I played in bands that sound like some of the bands in this book. I've played shows with some of the guys in this book, um, you know, prior to all of this. And Tom spent a lot of years on the road and, and doing that thing as well. Um, That's so a great both, picture of the two of, of yeah. you and Tracy. We had Tracy on about a month ago on the podcast. Go back to that, uh, Les Paul. I think that, or wait, that's an SG. That's both of you playing SGs. Mm -hmm. Is, SG brothers, yeah. I love it. I love it. Was that do, Was that at a show together that you guys were playing? Yeah, I did a gig with Tracy um, four or five years ago, and we actually did the whole um, first LA Guns record. It was like the anniversary of it or something. So... You know, it was started, I was just going to come up and play a song or two. And then he was just like, hey, you know, play the whole record. So, you know, I've been listening to this stuff for 40 years. So it's just a matter of kind of going over some riffs and stuff. And, if, and we if went you don't watch out, it. you'll be in L.A. Guns. Hold on. You, <laughs> you will be a former member of L.A. Guns before you know it. Trust me. I did it. I, I've done a whole gig. I just didn't play it with Tracy. I did it. <laughs> but, yeah. but but that is a rite of passage to actually play in L.A. Guns at least one. And Tracy's great, life. too. You know, like he can he can really play and shred it up, you know, and like those songs are great songs. So no doubt it was an honor to do it, you know, um, but. So yeah, so Tom and I are both guitarists um, by nature. And so we grew, and we also both grew up loving this music. I mean, more than anything else, that's the reason we did this book. It wasn't like what story hasn't been told yet or what you know niche or hole can we fill out there? It was just like, we love this music. And so at Guitar World, and especially we both started in the late 90s when you could not really even speak the name of a lot of the people in this book. Like you certainly, these are guys that, ruled guitar world for many years and we're on the cover every month 
Right. Um, you know, you couldn't even write 200 words about them in 1999. Uh, you couldn't put, you know, you couldn't cover George Lynch or Red Beach or Tracy Guns. Like it wasn't going to happen. But, you know, that said, Tom and I, this is all we talked about at work, you know, and this is like, this was just our passion and like these shredders and just all this music. So we actually started talking about this book probably decades ago. And it was always like, we should do this book. We should do this book. And we just never pulled the trigger. I think partly because we were sort of scared to, we were like, if we do this, like we are going to go down this rabbit hole and like never come back up because we know <laughs> how much we love this stuff, you know? And so, and that's actually what happened. I mean, thankfully we did come back up, but it took a while. Um, but when we finally decided to do it, it was like 2017 and we were finally just like, you know what, we, we have to do this thing. Um, and also and by that it. time, there's an appreciation for all those men, mm -hmm. those musicians that, that perhaps you couldn't have wrote about back in the year, in that particular year. But now yeah. as time goes on, that music is much more appreciated, much more respected. The musicianship you know, in itself. Yeah, Winger might have been a cartoon meme for, for some people, and that's kind of what Kip and, and uh, Reb have said. They said, fucking cartoon ruined our career. But at the same mm -hmm. time, you can't deny the friggin' talent and the great songs that came out of that band. Fucking Vic, how do you get these photos? Folks, you would think, <laughs> you would think that this was not a live stream because Vic, he's so quick on the draw. As long as he's not quick on, on pressing and broadcast, we're all good, I think. That yeah. would be fine. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but Ryan, you're right. And I think, um, I don't know that we could have written this book in 2000, you know, 1999. And not because, you know, forget about whether people would have bought it. It's more like, I don't know that the guys in the bands would have been so open to speaking about their careers in this way, because in 19, you know, in the late nineties, like they were still kind of smarting and from what had happened to them a little bit. And rightfully so. I mean, you know, these are guys that spent their whole lives like dedicated to a craft and rising to the top of what they do, you know, whether or not you like the music, you can't deny Warren D. Martini's incredible guitarist, you know, yeah. Kip Winger's a great musician. Like you don't have to like what they do fine, but not only are they not, you know, cool anymore selling records like people don't even respect what they can do on their instruments because now it's not even cool to be able to play your instrument like that right, right so you know they went through a tough time um and i don't know that they would have been able to talk about it with the right sort of perspective when they were still in it but now in you know 2019 2020 whenever we spoke to them like they were able to really look back on it um very clear-eyed you know and talk about what happened and for the most part, 90% of that is all great stuff anyway. Right. Um, you know, it's just the last 10% that often, you know, hurt. I think it might have something to do a little bit too with social media becoming more engaged with people being able to contact directly their favorite musicians that before there used to seem this unattainability that you could never even see them or talk to them, you know, on stage is great. I don't want to be able to, I don't ever want to have a conversation with Alice or Nikki Six or any of those huge rock stars that are out there when they're on stage. But when they come off stage, I felt that these last couple of years, especially, it's much more uh, engagement with direct engagement because you realize that you have to be cool to your fans because they're the ones that actually create you in the first place. 
Yeah, I agree. And it's a different, you're right. It's a different dynamic now. I mean, part of what I loved about this music growing up and what attracted me to it as a little kid was how larger than life these guys were. And it was like watching superheroes on MTV. You know, it's like, like, yeah, I mean, Eddie Van Halen, like, you know, Nikki Six, like you, the first, the first video that really did it for me was seeing like looks the kill by Motley Crue. Right. And like, you look at that video and these guys do not look like they're of this earth. <laughs> um, in addition to like, just thinking the song was awesome. Like you look at these guys and you're like, Oh my God. Like, I mean, or at least I was, you know, I was seven, eight years old and it just like sort of flicked that switch for me. And so, you know, that separation I think was a, a big deal in the eighties and sort of helped a lot of these bands create this image. Like, I don't know that it would work the same nowadays. I mean, maybe you would connect with fans in a different way that would be just as authentic, you know, I mean, probably more authentic, but the, the connection was so immediate back then, partly because of that separation you had between fan and artist. The influence is so undeniable. Rick, if you, uh, Vic, if you can go Rick, Rick, is that our new producer, Rick? Vic, if you can go back to that shot of Eddie Van Halen, I just realized something by watching it. That is the reason, folks, that I never got tattoos on my arms because I wanted Eddie Van Halen arms. And if you go back to our live <laughs> shot right now, there's my Eddie Van Halen arms. I, I, I wanted those arms, and I perhaps that's why I avoided the complete tattoo um, whole thing. I, I went through a couple different generations of tattoos of rock and rollers getting tattoos, but it's funny to see all these older pictures of these rock and rollers that don't have tattoos then in their first promo shots. And now it's sleeved out. I love it. It's a sign, again, the sign of the times. Um, so it sounds like you guys were big fans to begin with. And obviously that helps out when you're putting together something that is so um, important for uh, the rest of us that are big rock supporters because you're talent, you're a talented writers and you're also fans as well. You had some other big fans that have been a part of this that uh, are also big rock stars. You had uh, Corey Taylor uh, from Slipknot and Stone Sour write the, um, write the forward for this book. Is that, how did, and how did that come about? That um, that's interesting because we were looking for somebody to write a foreword that was not part of the book um, because obviously we could have gotten any number of people, you know, that are in the book to also write something at the beginning. Um, but we wanted a different perspective and we wanted to also, and it came pretty early on. We were like, we should get someone more modern and who's not in this world, um, but who can also show how this music influenced them to then go and do what they do, which might be something completely different. Um, but just to show sort of how, how far out, like sort of the tentacles reach for this music. And Corey came about, um, and it was sort of a team effort between Tom and I. Um, I sort of thought about Corey, like one day I was just like, Corey Taylor. And the thing that sort of sparked it was, I, I mean, I've interviewed Corey a lot over the years and other guys in Slipknot, and I knew that they liked this music and that they grew up on it to some extent. Um, Corey Taylor, at one point, um, he was on Twitter and he made some tweet saying like that he had been trying to sing some Dokken song and like blew out a testicle 
like trying to hit a Don Dock and high note, uh, you know, just sort of some As jokey thing that he wrote. As you do, yeah. Um, I blew out know, my I, testicles trying to sing like Robin Zander. That was years yeah, ago. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We all have that, Zander, that blown Dockin, testicle guy. <laughs> yeah, Sebastian Bach, whoever it may be. For Corey Taylor, it was Don Dockin. And so then he writes this thing on Twitter and Don Dockin responded. I forget what Don said, but they had this jokey little back and forth thing. And that sort of sparked it to me. I was like, this is the guy. Knowing also that Corey's very smart. He's well-respected. He can write. Um, and so I mentioned it to Tom because Tom used to edit uh, Revolver magazine, uh, which, you know, was deep in that Slipknot world. So he had connections yeah. over there. Yeah. So I was like, we should get Corey Taylor. And Tom reached out to management. Uh, we sent Corey like a very early manuscript of the book. He read the whole book and he was like, I'm in. And, you know, what he wrote pretty much went into the book verbatim. Like he just you know, spit out this sort of intro that really captured, I think, what a lot of us felt being kids in the 80s. All right. Well, I, I had heard once that uh, Corey Taylor had sen- said something on a podcast about a band I was in called uh, Electric Angels. And he really liked mm-hmm. that album. And he and he said some really kind words about it. And, I, and I've never been able to get in touch with him and thank him. So maybe my contacts through you and Tom will get, <laughs> you know, Corey on this podcast. And I can thank him personally because I know that he is sort of a glam metal fanatic. And, and it's one of those things where Electric Angels... I never really thought of ourselves as glam metal, but you know, the bottom line is whether you want to say hair metal, glam metal, it's not always looked on with, with, with positive connotations. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, what do you like to refer all these bands, the, the genre? Cause I would call it just an, an extension of classic rock and roll, but yeah. what, what is the, what is the correct term? Cause I, I know that you have said that, you know, yeah, the worst thing you can do is call these bands hair metal because then you <laughs> just start instant arguments on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, we, well, like in the title of the book, we call it eighties hard rock. And that was something that we talked about a lot. Um, and two main reasons that, that, you know, I prefer that term. Um, one is that, you know, we did this book, we talked to like 200 people, you're talking to all these guys in the, in the bands, they're opening up to you and really telling you like, you know, sort of their deepest, sometimes darkest secrets and memories and like really trusting you um, with that information and often passing you on to the next person. Like if we can't find someone, somebody might say, oh, I know him. And then they, they vouch for you. And now you're doing this other interview to do all of that, like we all know that the guys in this world do not like being called hair metal and rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's only ever meant in a derogatory way. Um, so to do 200 interviews, to write this 600 page book and then slap a title on it, that's just going to be offensive to everybody in the book is just, you know, is we're just not going to do something like that because it's just, it's offensive to them and it's disrespectful. Um, the other thing is that, I think it's also a very limiting term. I mean, if you look at this music in the 80s, if you grew up in in that era between 80 and 90, liking music that was hard rock, sort of riff-based, had, you know, guitar solos in it, like, this is what it was. There was no other rock, hard rock and roll that was going on. Like, if you played this type of music in those years, you had long hair, often big hair, you dressed outrageously. Like, that's that's what hard rock was. There's no other type of hard rock really in the eighties. There's metal, there's, you know, indie, there's college rock, whatever, but hard rock, like this is the sound of it. So to call it 
hair metal or glam metal or whatever, like is very sort of, you're kind of narrowing you're, and you're diminishing what it is. Yeah. Like, because it's so, it was so massive that it's actually just, it's hard rock and roll. And like that encompasses everything that happened in that decade. Well, along with Corey Taylor, uh, writing the forward, you had some praise as well from some of those bands. And Vic had, I, during this barrage of photos that Vic has been putting up, I saw a picture of Poison. And one of the coolest reviews that I was reading about it is a backstage pass to the wildest and loudest party in rock history. You'll feel like you were right there with us. That is Brett Michaels of Poison. Mm-hmm. And that would be a good cue for Vic to put up that Poison picture. Wow, there you go, Vic. I love <laughs> it. Vic just shakes his head like, what is it? I'm not the right yeah. timing? Too fast for you? But yeah, I mean, I love also the fact that you give some bands well-deserved credit for opening this MTV door because you call it 80s rock explosion. And what did really open the door? And one of the bands you point to is Quiet Riot, which I really find, again, with Vic putting up that right when I say it, that is quick, Vic, I must say. Give you lots of props. You made up for everything you messed up on last night. I love it. But uh, Rich... uh, (laughs) Rich Beanstalk, tell us about Quiet Riot and what your feelings are of how they did sort of open and pave the way for this 80s hard rock explosion. Yeah, I mean, Quiet Riot is, and it's funny because I, I talked to Vic about this a little bit yesterday. They're one of those bands, I mean, Quiet, I had that record, you know, Metal Health, we all did. Uh, we all saw Come On, Feel the Noise on MTV. That really was the thing that sort of opened this up to the to sort of the larger mainstream world, you know, and people all over the country that weren't just, you know, in LA or on the coast. Um, you know, Quiet Riot, they sort of, they petered out pretty quickly after that. Uh, and so they didn't really even sort of reap the rewards of the rest of the 80s. And because of that, they're not, I don't think that they're remembered in the same way as some of these bands. Um, but what surprised me about doing this book um, is how much they sort of how much space they take up in the book because actually once you start getting into the story and it's re- they're really important to the whole story and other guys start talking about them and how important it was to them and their bands and their career um, beyond that I've been surprised doing these interviews how much people want to talk about Quiet Riot because I didn't I don't I didn't see them on that same level as like oh everyone's just going to want to talk about Motley and Guns and Roses and Poison and all that stuff. Um, people want to talk about Quiet Riot. Like people love that record, and it really impacted a lot of people. And you know what it was about that is like, yeah, Come On, Feel the Noise really was the first, you know, quote unquote hair metal, whatever you want to call it, video to get major play on MTV. And from there, you know, we go to Twisted Sister, and we go to Motley Crue, and we go to all this stuff. And some of the guys in the book, I think maybe Ricky Rocket from Poison, you know, and maybe the guys in Twisted Sister too, are like you know, Quiet Riot kicked down that door and without, and then we all walked through, uh, but they were the ones that did it. And they did it after 10 years of really toiling in various states of obscurity. Well, huge props out to Quiet Riot. And, and I guess you would have to give Slade some credit as well, which is always, <laughs> you know, because a couple of the biggest songs were some great Slade songs. And mm-hmm. I mean, that actually is a great, paying homage to an older, a true glam rock band, making it it your own. 
opening the door for everybody else. And then years later, you get to write the book that, uh, you know, has umlauts over the O. (laughs) Obviously, a a, a paying homage to uh, Motley Crue as well. Um, Sure, yeah. um, You mentioned also in the introduction of the book that what a thrill it was, uh, you know, not just to be part of this scene or or must be to be in the band, but what what it was like to be an audience member at, at some of these shows. So my question to you is, what were some of the most memorable shows uh, that you went to back in those days? Because you might be a little bit more of the new school. You know, I don't see mm-hmm. as much salt and pepper in your beard as you see in mine, <laughs> all right? I'm just telling you that right out of the gate. <laughs> So well, you- look, I would say this. I mean, I, you know, I didn't actually, yeah, start going to shows until right at the end of the 80s. So I miss, you know, I, I'm sort of watching it through the lens of MTV and, and through Hit Parader and Circus and Rip and Faces and all these magazines, you know, that I've just sort of just devoured like voraciously. But, you know, I mean, the first like big arena show I went to that was in this world was Motley Crue. And it was a Dr. Feelgood tour. Dr. Feelgood, okay. Yep. Yeah, um, you know, December 11th, 1989. I remember that because it was Nikki Six's birthday. Um, <laughs> you know, Warrant opened. Uh, and then the next thing I saw was Poison, Flesh and Blood, and Warrant opened. So I just kept seeing Warrant at that time, too. Um, but, you know, it was like, it was everything that I imagined it would be. <laughs> it would be. Wow. Um, you know, it was the big arena thing. And like Tommy Lee for his drum solo is up. He's, you know, the drum. It wasn't the the spinning drum set, but it was the one that just went around the top of the arena. I think he, he um, did a medley of Alice, uh, of, of ACDC songs and some John Bonham songs. I remember that tour. I don't know if I saw that. Maybe yeah. I did see that tour. My first Motley Crue show, 1983, Keystone Berkeley. I think I talk about it almost too much on this podcast, but it was like 70 people at a, at a, at a small club. But yeah. That's re- probably better, yeah. Well, I definitely remember going to see <laughs> Girls, Girls, Girls tour as well at the LA Forum. Um, mm-hmm. Shamelessly trying to pick up Vanity. Um, I think Nikki remembers it, but he doesn't really want to talk about it when we talked about, you know, <laughs> when we see each other, we're, it's always friendly, but yeah. Um, yeah, Motley was a huge influence for me as well, but I did not know that Nikki Six's birthday was December 11th. That's very nice, and that's good go. to know. Well, I'm mine's the more December you know, first. yeah, there, the more <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, as far as promoting the book, because the, you put it out obviously, and, and you were making it years before, but as things happen in this year, in, in these last couple of years, year and a half, uh, everything to promote a book the book tour has mm-hmm. sort of gone the way of the music tour. So what has been the best ways that you guys have been able to uh, promote this book? And do you plan on doing a proper book tour once things start opening up as we eventually sort of climb out of this deep, dark rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as doing an actual book tour, we do plan on it uh, and plans Initially for this rollout, we're going to be, I mean, it's going to be great. Like we were going to do a bunch of stuff in LA and maybe get some bands to play that were, that are in the book. Like we had some big ideas um, and, you know, unfortunately they didn't wind up happening, uh, you know, right before this book, I actually, I don't know if you're friendly with Mark Weiss at all. A photographer. Definitely. Um, I, we yeah. see, every single time we play, um, every single time we play Jersey, I will, I will see Mark, you know, you somewhere, go, yeah. somewhere snapping shots. 
And I and, yeah, I, and I, I just have to get into Nita's frame in order to get into some of the shots. <laughs> I hear <laughs> no, you. Yeah. Mike's taking some great shots of me as well. Yeah, so um, we thank you. Mike. But so I just right before this Mark. book came out, I wrote um, Mark's book with him, yeah. the decade that rocked uh, his photo book, and there was you know we were going to do some big party for that. I think maybe at like the Rainbow or the Whiskey or something, and like you know all this stuff winds up not happening. Um, but as far as our book, like it came out in March and. This in this following March, we're putting out the paperback. Um, so the the hope is to do something big around that and do the book tour and the party and all the things that we weren't able to do the first time. Um, there's also it's been optioned for a documentary series, um, uh-huh. which we're we're talking about. So the hope for that as well is like you know to do something big around around that when that finally happens. Well, you're no stranger to that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit right after the commercial break. But if you could put, Vic, that uh, that order form right up right now, because my whole intent is if people can't see you immediately on the book tour, they can go right now, as you can see, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, all the... Uh, Barnes and Noble, all the usual suspects of where you would get your book and you can get the audio book as well. Um, who did you have any choice of who would uh, speak the audio book? Because I, I listened <laughs> to a little sample of it. it. It wasn't any familiar rock star that I that I recognized. Who was it that did that? Yeah, it's actually just a professional, uh, you know, Damn. voice actor. Ah. But we did um, we had, you know. There were auditions, and so we auditioned all these different voice actors. Um, and Tom and I do the intro. Actually, we, we read the intro ourselves. But that that was an interesting thing too, because you had these very often very serious, you know, people reading this insane dialogue from these guys. <laughs> you know, which so it was a trip. Like, and so the people that we picked were at least, and you know, often they can't, they don't know how to pronounce the names of the bands or like the people, and so we picked the people. That that really sort of nailed it the best, but these are just professional. Um, I listened know, voice to the actors. intro because that's what's on Amazon, so it was good that I mm-hmm. listened to you guys uh, yeah. hyping your own book because I thought it I thought it sounded <laughs> good, and that's what got me interested. In it. Just so you know, folks, full disclosure: I do not have the book, but our producer Vic. He ordered it and has been reading it for the last couple weeks, and um, he was he was full of stories. Like like he was able to get it through Amazon in a very quick amount of time because coming to the states, I'm all the way up here in Sweden. It took a little bit longer, but I'm going to get either Vic's copy or I'm going to get a copy when I get back out on the states when we start uh, touring. Uh, fingers crossed, hopefully in September, October with Alice, and maybe we will cross paths on your book tour for nothing but a good time. We are here with Rich Beanstalk. Uh, we have reached that halfway point where we are going to go to a quick commercial break right now. These, This is from our good friends over at Biodynamic that's powering our voices and powering our ears right now. Vic, would you please run that and we'll come back with part two. Yeah. Hello, folks. Roxy here. Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I'm very excited today to announce our newest sponsor, Biodynamic. They produce some of the industry's very best quality microphones and headphones, and that's why they're the perfect fit right here in the trenches. You're hearing my voice today through the great TG V70 microphone. This mic is perfect for any home studio, plus I get to use it on stage. I have paired the mic with the legendary Biodynamic Studio headphones, and they're called the DT770 Pros. These are amazing for analytical listening, truly the most authentic sound experience I've ever had. 
So whether it's listening to a podcast or one of your favorite albums, I definitely recommend these. Treat yourself right with Biodynamic Gear, the gold standard in high fidelity. Now, let's get back to the podcast. And there you go. That's, that's It happens that quickly. <laughs> we are here with Rich Beanstalk, folks. Welcome to In the Trenches. If you are just tuning in right now, do us a huge favor and hit that subscribe button that Vic, our producer, will put up. And uh, maybe he'll put it up. Maybe he won't. Oh, my goodness. What? Will, there it is. And he's got animation <laughs> and everything like that. Uh, we really appreciate your support. And um, like I said in the beginning, you know, one hand washing the other, both hands washing the feet. That's what we try to do here at the podcast because we want to, your book to be as successful as it can be, because that will just perpetuate us being able to stay in, employed, for one, and keep the, this whole touring cycle going. And what we like to do, usually we do it in the front, but I wanted to get the book out, which is, you know, I wanted to get the whole hype on the book, which is nothing but a good time, the uncensored history of 80s hard rock explosion, written uh, by our guest here today, co-authored by Rich Beanstalk and uh, his writing partner, uh, Tom Bojur. Did I get that right? I think I got it right. Bojur. Bojur. Soft J, yeah. See, there's no accents. <laughs> I, the, I, I need umlauts and accents to get it over. But there it is. And then the dog's name the, that never got credit, that did most of the work. <laughs> She is not now. I'm blanking. I'm blanking. The dog's okay. gonna be so mad. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's just say it was Fido. Dino. Dino. I was very close. Dino the chug. Yeah. Dino there you go. The chug. I love it. Well, let's start with a little bit of Vic. Let's go back to get forward because I'd like to find a little bit about going back, getting forward, find a little bit more about Rich. Let's do it. So you already mentioned you already mentioned that you and Tom uh, met in the mm-hmm. guitar world, the literal guitar world, Guitar World magazine, yes. and you had also um, worked for Guitar Aficionado magazine. And yeah. all of this stems from the fact that you yourself play guitar, and I can see some in the background. Um, mine are fake, obviously, but hold on, where's my real one? Damn it. I got I got my seventy, I got my seventy eight Les Paul right here with me today. There you go. And um, I'm not sure what you have in the background over there, but I'm just, just gonna grab one of them just because it's significant for this. Please do go get go around and get it. Then we can critique your closet and um, basically you have a nicer chair than I do. Oh look at that! That's amazing. Who did the custom paint job on that? Let's give credit where credit is due. Who did who did the uh, work on that this i forget who we had do these but this is another thing with tom and i we were just like well we have to get guitars made so we actually we did um a giveaway a a a contest when the book first came out where somebody could win one of these guitars but then tom and i just ordered them for ourselves as well because (laughs) of course because you can never have too many guitars especially ever 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 now who were your guitar heroes growing up and what got you into playing it to begin with well I'll strap that. Uh, guitar here. I mean, what got me into playing, like I just always, I mean, I played I played violin for a lot of years, not, and that was mostly just because I wanted to play something with strings, really. I wanted to play guitar, but I couldn't yet. But when I got into guitar, you know, it was all the stuff that's in this book. Like I wanted to be, more than anyone else, I wanted to be Slash. Okay. You know, because who doesn't want to be Slash? But, um, you know, it was all this, it was all these guys. It was, you know, your Warren D. Martinis and, and, 
Nick Mars and George Lynch and like, you know, any, any of these, these dudes, it was just Eddie, of course. Um, you and know, the arms. Eddie, the, and, and the, Eddie and the tattooless arms, of course. I know your, your mother probably <laughs> should thank Eddie Van Halen for, you know, her son doesn't have any tattoos. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was this music and all of these guitars um, that, that made me want to do it. And, you know, it was just, I always just wanted to get closer to the music in any way I could. And one of the ways to do that was to learn how to play the music. Um, and I don't really think I ever put that much thought into it, but I think it was just like, of course, eventually I was going to start playing guitar and learning how to play these songs. You know, the first song I ever learned how to play on guitar was Talk Dirty to Me. You know, so it's like, I just went that right there. That is a and far like, cry from my first song that I learned, <laughs> which after Smoke on the Water Riff, I mean, come on, you had to mm-hmm. learn smoked on wa- Smoke on the Water Riff. I learned it just on the high E string, yeah. yeah okay. Now, I couldn't even do chords yet, so just, you know, open string, third fret, fifth fret, sixth fret. Uh, but yeah, the first actual chords I, I learned how to play was Talk Dirty to Me. I so, love it. CC would be so proud. CC. But yeah, and I but- love CC. <laughs> Well, you're no stranger to writing uh, books about these iconic artists, and you've written uh, other books, and we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that perhaps, you know, fingers crossed, our big uh, bombshell will be that uh, the, the new book becomes a movie or some sort of mm-hmm. TV project or some sort of Netflix deal. Who knows what happens with it? I hope it all hap- works out for you because, again, it only helps out the whole entire genre of 80s rock and what we're doing. But you've also helped work on other books that have become movies and movies that have become books. And one of them was another very influential rocker um, of the 90s, Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. And yeah. how did... Uh, that was... You released that pretty much in 2016. How did mm-hmm. that all come about? Because I know that you collaborated with Brett Morgan, and he's yeah. an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. And what was it that uh, got you into that project? Well, that and that—that's a case where the the film came first, of course. So the book was like a, a companion to the montage of Heck film that came out, which I mean was was a big thing at the time um, because it was the first. Kurt Cobain project where, you know, a lot of these people in in Kurt's life do not get along, as we all know. And this was the first project where they all worked on something together. So you had some, you had, you know, the guys in the the band um, in Nirvana, but you also had Courtney and you also had Kurt's mother and you had Kurt's, you know, old girlfriend, like all these people that had been at, some of them have been at war with each other for a long time. So it was a big deal to get them all in on one project. Um, Absolutely. The book came about, you know, I had a relationship with this publisher because I had done a few books with them. I did a Slash book with them that Slash was involved in and Joe Perry and Ron Wood wrote s- some stuff for it. And we did, you know, this whole thing. It was sort of a, an illustrative history of Slash through the eyes of one photographer. Um, and that went really well. So this other project came up and it was actually kind of a rush job because the the documentary the Kurt Cobain documentary was done already already and yeah and there was so much interview footage and transcript from these people like Chris Novoselic and you know and Courtney Love and Kurt's mother and like 
what winds up happening is only a fraction of it gets used in the actual documentary. So then you're sitting on all of this great material and it's like, what do you do with it? And it's like, well, let's make a book out of it. And we did it oral history style as well. And it really, it goes through all of Kurt's life, really from childhood to the end through the eyes of these people that really knew him um, and that knew him, you know, in a really intimate way that we don't really know about. Um, and it was fascinating because they're also, you know, they all have their different viewpoints of what went down. I mean, once you start getting into Courtney Love and Kurt's mother telling the same, you know, telling about a specific incident, like there's pretty much nothing that matches up in their memory. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like, and look, I Two mean, sides there's a lot every of, story. yeah, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff that went down. There's a lot of hurt, you know, mm. and, and all this other stuff, but you know, we put this thing together and honestly, I mean, this, this book that I just did was like four years. The Kurt Cobain book was probably like seven days, honestly, like to put the whole book together. Wow. Um, so you've experienced one to the yeah. other, one extreme. And it was a miserable other. seven days. But then again, at the end of seven days, like we, we had a book and that was great. I think um, you actually deserve yeah. an Oscar just for <laughs> getting Chris Novacek's name right. I, I, I've never heard anybody <laughs> pronounce it right, and I can't even pronounce it. And, yeah. and I just heard you pronounce it right. Chris Novacek. Go ahead, please. I, you know, I don't know if it's a hard C at the end or not. Novacek, Novacek. I think but, you got it right. But yeah, it, it sounds um, better than when you say it than when I say it. <laughs> the bass player. I'm a professional. Folks. You are a professional. Yeah. Well, I mean, you. you... Uh, but, so, but yeah. And like, but you know, and as much as I grew up on this 80s stuff, I was also a teenager in the early 90s. And I was in, you know, I was in high school with Nirvana and all that stuff. So that's as much a part of my musical makeup as well. So it was just an amazing experience to work on that project and and brett morgan was incredible too just to see how the mind of somebody like that were like he's a true artist um and just to see his mind sort of just go and like you know we were off and then it was just done and and it was it was a really like once in a lifetime type of opportunity well i like the fact that you take your job you, you, you have this such a passion for it because you start off as a fan, as we all do, and, and we never forget that. And there's a picture of you and I think Gene Simmons for some reason. Um, it has <laughs> nothing to do with anything I'm saying, but there you go. Um, the thing is you take all your passion into your work, you put it into it, and that's mm-hmm. sort of where we're at with our group that we have here over at the In the Trenches uh, group because we have a thing called Fan of the Week that we do every single week. And it's, it's someone that's very passionate, that's put some work into promoting our podcast, promoting you on the podcast, Rich Beanstalk, uh, so that more people could see it and view it. And this week we'd like to uh, give credit to our Fan of the Week and she did it by playing guitar riffs and just showing week in and week out what a strong supporter of uh, the Roxy Guitar Army she is. Would you please welcome this week's fan of the week, Officer Burke Holder. Vic, hit it, baby. <laughs> and he's trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Officer Burkholder. There you are. Congratulations, Susan Burkholder. You um, now you just got to start writing books about us, and then we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll be right on, right on key. Yeah. It, not, so, 
in the spectrum of rock, it keeps going, you know, whether you have the 80s hard rock explosion, um, you have the books about, the illustrated books about Slash, you had Rush in there as well. Um, obviously, the Kurt Cobain book that we just picked up. But this was Aerosmith. You did a, mm-hmm. a cool uh, illustrated, ultimate illustrated history of the bad boys from Boston. This is what made me think that you were originally from um you know, up in the Northeast when I was doing the research, but it turns out yeah. you're from New York. But uh, what was the uh, what was the fascination with Aerosmith? Um, Aerosmith, just one of my favorite bands, always has been. Like, um, I am deep in that Aerosmith world. Um, I've interviewed, I've interviewed Joe Perry a bunch. Um, you know, spent time with him at his house in Boston and like at the Aerosmith warehouse and all those places. You know, I've seen them on stage a million times. Um, you know, and it's just, they were a band that I've just always loved. And I love really, honestly, like every era of, of Aerosmith. I was going like, to I was gonna say that my next stuff. question, would it be 70s uh, Aerosmith, mm-hmm. 80s Aerosmith, or, you know, perhaps even <laughs> the, the, the 2000s Aerosmith? Because yeah. it, it has evolved into such a uh, progressive band that now is just mainstream completely. But, you know, for me, yeah. if, if, if I'm a little bit more old school. I go with the old, I go Bon Scott. You know, mm-hmm. I say, uh, I say Bon Scott, I say 70s Aerosmith, and I say Stephen Perry with Journey and not the Filipino guy. <laughs> yeah, and look, I mean, of course, 70s Aerosmith, like that's always going to be tops, you know, but I will say, you know, and not that I love the 80s Aerosmith that much, but the pump era of Aerosmith might be, you know, them at the top of their game. 1989, like. Yeah, like night, like even permanent vacation, they're not quite there. But like you watch footage of Aerosmith on stage in like eighty nine, ninety, and I saw them on that tour as well. Like they're just phenomenal, and you know as good as they were in this probably well actually as a live band probably better than they were in the seventies, right? Um, for certain reasons, but you know there's like a video of them at the marquee in like nineteen ninety with Jimmy Page. You know he comes on and he plays with them, and they're just like on fire, and like that record as well. Um, and I'm sort of getting off track here, but I love Aerosmith and always have, um, you know, I know everything about that band from like the Two deepest albums cut. I listened to 19, it was right, right around that 1988, 89. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was making the electric angels album, we were in the UK okay. and the two albums that I played most during that one month or six week experience of, of recording the UK was Aerosmith pump Actually, mm-hmm. three albums. Aerosmith Pump was out. Dr. Feelgood had just come out as well. And then this mm-hmm. new band called Alice in Chains. So there was never that right. <laughs> never heard of them. And yeah. that was right when this transition started taking place. And it was really cool yeah. to see that Aerosmith almost was passing the torch on to all the new bands that, that, that would eventually, you know, take over with grunge. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and actually, I'm bringing up Alice in Chains, like, you know, Jerry Cantrell's in our book as well, in Nothing But a Good Time, um, and gives great insight into that sort of, you know, changeover moment. Um, you know, Kim Thiel from Soundgarden is in the book as well. Yeah. We talked to him, and like these guys, like, have really good, you know, perspective on what was going on. And also, like, you know, the whole sort of hair metal versus grunge thing, like, they're just like, like, 
Jerry Cantrell is like, I wasn't basing my career on trying to kill another style of music. Like what a, what a moronic thing to try to do. Anything that was grunge was influenced by, by those bands anyway. All those. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And Jerry was like, Allison Chains, we played shows with extreme. We played shows with poison. We played shows with great white. Like at the beginning, like it was all just, that's just what was going on. I mean, Jerry Cantrell was in a band with one of the guys from pretty boy Floyd. Um, you know, and he knew those guys and like, there wasn't any sort of animosity. I mean, that came a little bit late. It wasn't necessarily any animosity at any point within the bands themselves. Um, but it came from probably a lot of it from the media, you know, and like, it was this very sharp divide that happened, but the bands weren't out to, you know, kill anything or to separate themselves from anything. Like they were just expressing their own artistic, you know, I will, say, I will say that the camaraderie that you would, that you would experience in the Seattle scene, the grunge scene, exactly the same as the camaraderie that you would see in those L.A. bands during mm-hmm. the 80s. There was just this all for one, one for all. Everybody, if one band gets signed, the, of course there's competition amongst those bands, but if one band gets signed, it's good for all of us. And, right. and I talk about it, you know, this, this other famous show that I saw at the Roxy with, um, with Guns N' Roses opening up for LA Guns. And cer- certainly the, the, the tide would change after that, but it, at the Roxy and both bands kicking ass, you know, and, and at that point, LA Guns headlining, but getting back really quickly to that, um, to that early 70s uh, Aerosmith era, mm-hmm. I want to just give a quick, shameless plug for next week's episode of In the Trenches, folks. And thank you very much for watching. We've had uh, Rich Beanstalk with us. Uh, and But next week, we will have one of the guitar players that uh, mm. it's, it's fabled to have uh, recorded the solo train kept a rolling. And I think it's more than urban legend. It's actually fact at this point, instead of fact or fiction, it definitely is fact. Steve Hunter will be our guest on the next week's episode of in the trenches. So uh, thank you very much with that. Um, I know that we're going to wrap it up a little bit. I know that time has been a little bit uh, consolidated today. I'd love to have you back on where we can talk a little bit more and explore a little bit more of these stories. Um, But do you have one of the, you know, maybe just pepper us with one of your favorite stories from uh, Nothing But a Good Time uh, to to, uh, get people excited about it and get (laughs) get on that Amazon as quick as they can after this uh, program? You know, I think... um I mean, if we're just sort of looking for something that's sort of, you know, a little bit, you know, sort of wet the appetite. I mean, obviously there's a lot of the sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll type stuff in the book. I think you can't talk about this stuff without that. Um, And I'll say one thing I'll say about that is, you know, what we tried to do there, because you've heard a lot of these stories from the guys in the band. I mean, we've all read the dirt and stuff like that. So we, get a lot of these stories through the eyes of people that weren't necessarily in the bands that are experiencing this thing. Cause you ask Tommy Lee, you know, about like, whatever, if you ask him about a groupie story, it's like, that was every night of his life. Dude, for, you know, dude, it was yeah, every like, friggin' night, bro. So like, what is he going to really have to tell you? You know, what's he going to remember that's going to stick out. But if you talk to the guy who worked at Electra and handled Motley Crue, Um, And we did talk to that guy. um, And he tells you about the one night he went to see Motley Crue headline some arena, mini arena in like Oklahoma in 1985. 
and he goes backstage and he tells you, you see the backstage scene and what's going on there through his eyes, you know, a regular nine to fiver, then it's like, holy shit, like this is not normal. What's a going completely on? And so, different, but real yeah. perspective of it. Yeah. And so there's stories like that. Um, but then, you know, like there's a great, uh, I mean, another story I'd point to, there's a lot of really good Dokken stories in the book because they're just sort of an insane band and their, their interband relationships are kind of nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, and so like we go really deep into the recording of one of their records, a record called Tooth and Nail, right? Um, which is like 1984 or something. And the reason we wind up going so deep into it is not because we intended to, but as we start talking to people about the recording of that record in the studio sessions, it just gets crazier and crazier. And like it started with Tom Werman, who produced the record. And produced and so many telling, great records. Tom yeah, Werman is yeah. like, produced and all like, my great is, cheap trick records. I love that. Right. And like Motley Crue and all these guys. Yeah. So he's like the guy. And this is his first record with Dokken. This is sort of a make or break moment for Dokken. And they get into the studio and they just act like complete insane like children you know and like they're they're dysfunctional i mean yeah george and don were Mm -hmm. were dysfunctional from the get-go but that they they were the classic guitar player singer type relationship that you've yeah to friction thing yeah but the story sort of exemplifies like this is a big moment for them they have their big producer their first record on electro records um and they just kind of fuck it all up you know like they're playing like practical jokes on each other. They're riling up George Lynch to the point where he wants to fight Tom Werman. And it's just like, like, what do you guys do? And we get really specific into what happened. And if you read the book, it's a really funny story. But I love it. And- yeah, and it, but it's just like, it's a great story because it's funny, you know, on the surface. But then it's also like showing like what is going on here where these guys are taking their moment where they could potentially go for the gold. And they're just acting like insane children, you know, and like it sort of works out in the end, like they do okay, but maybe they could have done better had they actually taken it seriously the way a guy like Nikki Six would, you know, even though Nikki Six is crazy in his own way, right. he knows when to get down to business and do his job. Gotcha. These guys really didn't. Well, I love the fact that you did involve managers, producers, engineers, label executives, publicists, stylists, custom, uh, costume designers, photographers, journalists, magazine publishers, video directors. You, you put the whole gamut into this book. Roadies, groupies, hangers on, <laughs> everybody. Damn. Yeah. This Everybody... Check out Nothing But A Good Time, the uncensored history of the 80s, 80s hard rock explosion. Um, I'm going to basically get on out of here with you right now, but I need people to find out where they can find you and where they can find the book. Uh, for those that are listening on the audio broadcast, uh, Rich, would you please tell them what's the best way to get in touch with you and the book? Sure. Yeah. Well, as far as the book uh, on Facebook and Instagram, we are at nothing but a good time book. Um, and there's a lot of updates there. You know, there's excerpts from the book. We've done contests, things like that. So it's kind of a fun place to go to find out more about it. Certainly, if you want to purchase the book, go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, you know, go to your local indie bookseller and they should have it or be able to get it for you. Uh, but it's, it's out there everywhere. I love it. So that is heading out to the highway. I will leave the interview with 
one last, the one that got away. Only because I love the animation so much, but I think you'll like the story that involves an, into it as well. Vic, you want to run that animation? It is the one that got away. And you know what? This is your choice, Rich, because you are a guitar player uh, and you love guitars as much as I do, as much as we all do. You and Tom both love guitars, so much so that you wrote the book and um, about all these great bands. But the one that got away is about a guitar or a piece of equipment that you had to sell or that was stolen or lost. Did that ever happen? Or you can choose, is there an interview that you haven't done yet that has gotten away from you? And is there an interview that you wish you can have that perhaps got away? Well, I mean, quickly in the, on the gear side of things, and I'll keep it sort of 80s here, um, one of my first guitars was an Ibanez Red Beach model Voyager, um, which didn't hang around that long. Um, you know, it's discontinued of course. And it was like, you know, early nineties, crazy shape, you know, your sort of low pro edge, like tremolo system, all like the fix-ins and everything, which I did eventually sell for what is my main guitar now, which is a Gibson SG, which I love, but I would still love to have that Voyager. Um, cause now it's almost like, you know, a relic of a past time that, that doesn't really exist anymore. And, and it's almost like retro, in, in a weird way. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't lose sleep over it. Um, as far as interviews, I'd probably say Eddie Van Halen, um, you know, from all those years of guitar world, um, he was like the one guy that I just never interviewed. Like he didn't, by that time, you know, he wasn't doing as many interviews and like, I've gotten the opportunity I've interviewed, uh, David Lee Roth a bunch and I love David Lee Roth. Um, you know, if I had to choose, he'd probably actually be the guy from Van Halen that I would want to interview. So I've been fortunate there and I've talked to Michael Anthony, um, but Eddie, it just never happened. Um, hmm. Oddly enough, I did get, we, we did something in Guitar World where we needed him this past year and this, or I mean, in 2020, and this was before anyone knew really how sick he was. Right. And his wife, Janie, did provide a quote from him. Right. Uh, which was probably the last, you know, sort of public kind of thing that he ever commented on, but it was just an email quote, but, you know, to not ever, I never had the opportunity to sit down and have like a full interview with him, And that, that would have been great. Coincidentally enough, never, he's one of the, my guitar heroes that I haven't met. I've, I've been yeah. lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet as, as many, but yeah, well, someday both of us will meet him. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, somewhere in some uh, different plane or, <laughs> plane or reality. But that's for a whole nother podcast, Rich. Rich Beanstalk yeah. has been our guest, um, author of, you know, the book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History, the uncensored history of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. Um, that's Rich Beanstalk and Tom Bujor that have written this book that you will all go out and check out. It's been great uh, having you on. Thank you very much, Rich. And congratulations Thanks, to Susan Burkholder for being our fan of the week. And you know what? Steve Hunter, 
Steve Hunter, guitarist for Alice Cooper, and so many more bands. We're going to dive all into that on next week's In the Trenches. Um, Rich, let's have you back sometime when um, we have more stories to tell. Maybe you're on your book tour. We're on a regular music tour, but it's been a pleasure having you. Everybody hanging out in the chat. Hold on one second. Rich, is there anything else you'd like to say to our, our folks right now? No, I mean, I would just say to you, I would say thank you for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, hopefully that hopefully I can come back with my co-author and we can, you know, do this again. Definitely, Rich. Thank you, everybody. Vic, thank you for putting all together all that great production, all those great pictures. Everybody in there, start promoting this. Start getting the word out there. And until next time, Ryan Roxy from In the Trenches. Enjoy the ride. See y'all. <laughs> In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello. Moby, give him his guitars back.